0: Welcome to Be Set Free, the radio outreach of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. Be Set Free features the teaching ministry of Pastor Nick Cady. Pastor Nick's desire is to bring the gospel into our lives so we can experience the joy and freedom that can only be found through Jesus. Today's message comes from our series, The Risen Life, in which we look at the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus and consider what Jesus' resurrection means for us Who have been raised to new life in Christ? Here's Pastor Nick.
1: So glad that you're here with us this morning. Would you please open with me in your Bibles to the the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. That's the last chapter in the Gospel of Luke. So you could also open up to like the Gospel of John. And then just go one page to the left. That's another way to get there. However you get there, Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. That's where we'll be studying today. Well, today we're beginning a new series, as I mentioned, called The Risen Life. And in this series, what we're doing is we're taking six weeks to look at what Jesus did in the time after his resurrection and before his ascension. So we know from the Bible that Jesus, for 40 days... After his resurrection, he was on the earth doing things. What did he do during that time? Why does it matter? That's what we're going to be studying about in this series called The Risen Life. And by doing this, what we're doing is we are actually participating in and celebrating a tradition that Christians have done for for centuries, even, even millennia. This isn't just like something we came up with on our own. This is something that Christians have been doing for a very long time. It's called Eastertide. And Eastertide is the 50 days following Resurrection Sunday leading up to Pentecost, in which it's a 50-day celebration of Jesus' resurrection. Now, the reason we're doing this is because, guys, the resurrection of Jesus is such good news that it doesn't make sense to only celebrate it for one day every year and then kind of put it back in the drawer until next year. Am I right? For the next few Sundays, we're going to keep the party going, if you will. And you're going to notice here in the building every week, we're going to have kind of a, a celebratory theme. The balloons that you see around the building, we invite you, especially parents with kids, but anybody who wants one, take these with you as you go. Keep the party going with you as you go home from this place. We want there to be a spirit of celebration as we celebrate the hope that we have in Jesus and the new life that we have in him. And every Sunday, just like we do on Easter Sunday, we're going to begin our study with the Paschal or uh, resurrection greeting of, you know, he is risen. He is risen indeed. We're going to do that in just a minute. But the point is, we want to keep declaring it and keep celebrating it because he's still risen from the grave. But you know, the other reason we're doing this is because we want to learn about and study what it means for us to live in the power of the resurrection. The Bible tells us that to be a Christian is not just to know about the resurrection or not just to believe that Jesus really did rise from the dead, but the essence of the Christian life is actually to live in the power of Jesus' resurrection. Now, what does that mean practically? That's what we're going to be talking about in this series. And then, so we're doing this series for Eastertide. The next series we're going to do, we'll follow that same calendar on the day of Pentecost. We're going to begin a new series called the Spirit-filled life. So these two series kind of go together. The risen life and then starting on Pentecost, the Spirit-filled life. We're going to be talking about the person and work of the Holy Spirit. I'm excited. I hope you guys are too. Please bow your heads with me and let's pray. Lord, thank you for this glorious hope we have in you because you are risen indeed. And because of that, there is hope beyond the grave and there is hope that gives purpose to our lives today. Lord, thank you that we can live in the power of your resurrection. Help us to understand what that means and help us to walk in that today as we study your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, let's begin with this resurrection greeting. Jesus is risen. And you say, Amen. let's do it again. Jesus is risen. risen. I remember when I saw the movie for the first time, it was a movie about a middle-aged therapist. Who wouldn't want to watch a movie about a middle-aged therapist? Am I right? A middle-aged therapist who has problems in his marriage. Fascinating, right? Right well, listen, here's the movie. I watched it for the first time, I remember. And and this middle-aged therapist, having troubles in his marriage, he's trying to help a troubled young boy. This young boy had a problem, but the therapist, as I mentioned, he had problems of his own. At one point, one of his patients had broken into his house and attacked him in his home. And now, as I mentioned, his relationship with his wife was strained. She wasn't even speaking to him. In fact, She wouldn't even look at him when he was in the room. She wouldn't even acknowledge his presence when he was in the room. Well, anyway, this therapist, he begins meeting with this young boy to talk about the problem the boy was experiencing. The problem the boy had, he said, was that he was seeing ghosts. He said, I see dead people just walking around. Nobody else can see them except for me. And the therapist, he tried to help this boy manage these hallucinations that he seemed to be having. Now, I remember, the first time I watched this movie, when it first came out, do any of you know what the movie is that I'm referring to? It's called The Sixth Sense, starring Bruce Willis and some boy whose name we don't know, right? And, and if, uh, if you haven't seen it, I'm about to just ruin the movie for you right now. So be prepared. And I don't even feel bad about it because it came out 20 years ago. And if you haven't seen it, that's on you, okay? You had plenty of chances. All right, you ready? Here's the... Here's, here's the the way I'm going to ruin the movie for you. At the end of the movie, you discover something that changes the way you see everything that happened in the movie prior to that. What you find out is that the therapist, Bruce Willis, He's actually been dead the entire time. I know, whoa, some of you guys are like, wait a second. He's actually a ghost. Because remember, the little boy, he can see dead people. He can see ghosts. And you realize at the end of the movie that the main character has actually been dead the whole time. And when you realize that crucial detail about the main character, it changes everything. Little details in the movie that you saw, but you kind of ignored them or overlooked them because they seemed superfluous or unnecessary, suddenly you realized that that made a lot of sense, that it was actually really important. You see, for example, the reason the main character's wife won't talk to him is not because she doesn't love him. It's because she can't see him. He's dead. You realized that when that patient of his broke into the house at the beginning of the movie, he actually killed Bruce Willis. At that point, he died. And I remember watching that movie for the first time, and when you realize this important piece of information that Bruce Willis is actually dead this entire time, you're like, wait a second. I need to now go back and watch this entire movie all over again, knowing what I know now, I'm going to see it with completely different eyes. Things that before I saw and I thought, well, that's kind of weird, but whatever. Now I go back and I watch it. I'm like, oh, that's why that happened. Now it all makes sense. And so after watching the movie for the first time, spending like two hours of my life on that, you know what I did? I went back and watched it for another two hours. And this time it was like watching a completely different movie because I knew this piece of information, this crucial detail about the main character that made me watch the movie in a completely different way. Now listen, for those of you who haven't seen that movie, just think about this. I just saved you two hours. You still have to go watch it. You still have to go watch it, but now you'll know the crucial detail. You see, one of the things you notice is that during the movie, the little boy's mother never looks at the therapist, but you notice that the second time around. You're like, oh, dang. And then the other thing you notice is that the therapist never meets with the boy in like a therapist's office, which is what you would expect, right? He always meets with him in like weird, random public places. And that one piece of information about the main character, it's the key which unlocks the meaning of the story. And in our study today of Luke chapter 24, you're going to see that the Bible works in a very similar way. There's a crucial detail about the main character, and once you see it, you have to go back and read the whole thing all over again. In the gospel of Luke chapter 24, we read about how after Jesus' resurrection, he met with his disciples, and those disciples, they saw someone who had been dead but was now alive, and as a result, they began to see everything else in a whole new way. The title of today's message is. Is seeing Jesus anew, seeing Jesus anew. And what we're going to see in this text is this that truly seeing the risen Jesus unlocks the meaning of the Bible. And unleashes God's power in our lives. Truly seeing the risen Jesus unlocks the meaning of the Bible and unleashes God's power in our lives. That's our takeaway truth, our summary sentence. I'd love for you to write that down, take a picture of it, whatever you got to do to remember it and take it with you as you go today. But we're also gonna use it as our outline for studying this passage. So let's break this down. First of all, truly seeing The risen Jesus. Well, listen, last Sunday we read the passage in Luke chapter 24 where it says that Jesus, his disciples, they went to the tomb on the Sunday when he resurrected from the grave and they discovered that Jesus wasn't there. The tomb was empty. But listen, that's not the end of the story, is it? If Jesus isn't in the tomb, then where is he? Let's find out. Look at verse 13. It says, That very day, two of them, two of Jesus' disciples, were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all the things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And Jesus said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened here in these days? And he said to them, what things? Now, of course, Jesus knows he just wants to get them talking. And they said to him, we were talking about Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, but our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. We had hoped, they say in verse 21, that he was the one who would redeem Israel. But alas, he was killed, and it's now been three days. However, some of the women from our group, they went to the tomb, and his body wasn't there. And they say that they saw an angel who said that Jesus was alive. And then some of the other disciples, they went there too to see if what the women said was true. And everything they found was just as the women had reported it. Hey, Pastor Nick here. Are you looking for a resource to help you answer some of the most difficult questions about God in the Bible? Then we've got good news for you. I've written a book called The God I Won't Believe In, Facing Nine Common Barriers to Embracing Christianity. In this book, I deal directly with some of the biggest questions people struggle with, such as how a loving God can allow innocent people to suffer, or whether God condoned genocide in the Old Testament, or whether the Bible encourages the suppression of women and minorities, does the Bible really say that some kinds of love are wrong? And is there actual proof that God exists and that the Bible is trustworthy? I address these topics and more in this book, which is a great resource for anyone who wrestles with doubts or who has concerns about these topics, and it's a great resource for those who want to help others who have questions about these topics. So to purchase this book, search for The God I Won't Believe In, Facing Nine Common Barriers to Embracing Christianity, wherever books are sold, or visit nickkady.org. And to celebrate the release of this book, we are offering a free copy of the book as a gift to any of our listeners who make a donation of any amount to support Be Set Free Radio at besetfreeradio.com. And now back to today's message. You see, for these disciples on the road to Emmaus, the resurrection of Jesus at this point It was still just a rumor, a fantastic, wonderful rumor, if it was true. And there was some evidence that it might be true, but they didn't yet fully believe it. They they wanted to, but they weren't yet convinced. And so check out what Jesus says to them in verse 25. He said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? So as they're there walking down this road, Jesus begins to talk to them and remind them about the words of the scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, And the first thing he reminds them of is that according to the prophets, it was a necessity that the Messiah should suffer. You see, before Jesus was born, for thousands of years, there were prophecies that were given, which foretold that one day God was going to send a Savior into the world. But here's the thing. These prophecies, if you take them and look at them, They're kind of a mixed bag. They're a mixed bag for sure. Uh, and, And here's why. Most of the prophecies about this Savior, they talk about how he will be a glorious, triumphant ruler. And yet there are also a substantial number of prophecies which describe how this Savior must suffer and even die. For example, Jesus might have reminded them of Isaiah chapter 53, where Isaiah told us that the coming Savior would be despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, that he would bear our griefs and carry our sorrows, but he would be smitten by God, not for himself, but for us. His wounds would be inflicted For our transgressions, he would be bruised. For our iniquities, the chastisement that brought us peace would be laid upon him, and by his wounds we would be healed. Jesus might have reminded them of Isaiah chapter 50 where Isaiah foretold that this Savior, he would come, and he would be obedient to God, and yet people would strike him on the back like with a whip. They would pluck out his beard, and they would spit in his face all things that happened during Jesus' crucifixion. And yet in spite of what the people would do to him, the Savior would set his face like a flint in order to complete his mission. Jesus might have reminded them of Daniel chapter 9, verse 26, where Daniel told us that the coming Savior, the Messiah, he would be cut off, meaning killed, but not for his own sake, but for our sakes. Or maybe he would remind them of Zechariah chapter 12, where Zechariah foretold that the Messiah would be pierced by the very people he came to save. You see, these prophecies that the Messiah would suffer and die as you might guess, they were not very popular. They were certainly a lot less popular than the other prophecies about how he would be a triumphant, glorious ruler and king. And so what the people did, it was very easy for them to kind of of ignore those prophecies about suffering and dying and to focus more on the prophecies about the, the Messiah as glorious, triumphant king. For the Jewish people also, these prophecies, which talked about the Messiah suffering and dying, they were a source of great confusion. The source of great confusion. Here's why. Because if the coming Savior was supposed to be a triumphant king, how could he do that if he's rejected and killed? It doesn't make any sense. And yet, there it was in black and white. They couldn't ignore it. And Jesus reminded these two disciples as they went along the road. He reminded them of the important and meaningful and numerous prophecies which stated that the Messiah would suffer and die. And then Jesus did something remarkable. Look at verse 27. It says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. This must have been, without question, the greatest Bible study that's ever been taught in the history of Bible studies. And we're going to talk about it more in just a minute. But first, look at verse 28. So they drew near to the village to which they were going, and Jesus acted as if he was going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in with them to stay with them. This mysterious stranger who's been teaching them from the scriptures. They want more time with him. They don't want him to leave. And so they, they get him and they, they pull him in their house. And Jesus enters the house with them. And then look at verse 30. It says, when he was at the table with them, he broke the bread and blessed it and gave thanks and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Now listen, why is it that they did not recognize Jesus at first, but then during this meal, suddenly they recognize him? Well, listen, these two men, they were close disciples of Jesus. They were intimately familiar with him. They would have recognized him if they had seen him, and yet there was something about Jesus' appearance after his resurrection that was different. Now on the one hand, he was not a ghost, He looked and sounded and felt like a human. He broke bread with his hands. Later on in verses 41 through 43, we read about how Jesus ate a piece of fish. In verses 39 and 40, we read that Jesus invited his disciples to touch his body and feel him because as he said, a spirit or a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. So he was not a ghost. And yet, we're told at the end of verse 31 that Jesus, as he was in their house, suddenly he vanished from their sight. And then in verse 36, we read about how Jesus then appeared in the place where the other disciples were gathered behind locked doors. And he didn't knock on the door. He didn't ring the doorbell. He didn't use a key. He just entered into that place. So on the one hand, Jesus's body after his resurrection was human. It was physical. He had hands and feet and a voice. You could touch him. You could hug him. And yet, his body was also different than it had been before. Different than my body or your body. There are things that he could do now that he couldn't previously do. And Jesus' appearance was such that the disciples didn't recognize him until they did. And when they did, then they saw, oh yes, it's him. Kind of like, it's kind of like this. If you've ever met a friend from your childhood whom you haven't seen in many years, and then you meet them, at first you might not recognize them. But then once you realize that it's them, Then you suddenly, oh yeah, now I see it. I see. I recognize you. This is what happens to me all the time. I meet people from my past and they're like, oh, I remember when you had hair. You look different, right? It's kind of of the same thing. Jesus has been gone for three days, but there's now something different about his appearance. Now, this is interesting because in his two letters to the Corinthians, in both of these letters, Paul the Apostle, he talks about how when we are resurrected, we will receive new bodies, and our resurrection bodies will be different than the bodies that we have now. He says there in 2 Corinthians, these corruptible bodies that we have will be put off, and we will put on new, incorruptible bodies. And Jesus says, or Paul says that Jesus, he is the first fruits of those who have been raised from the dead to eternal life. In other words, Jesus is the prototype. He's model number one. And when we see him, we will be like him. In other words, Jesus' resurrection body tells us a lot about what our resurrection bodies will be like. They will be physical You will be recognizable, and yet they will be different. They will be better. You will not be limited in the same way that your bodies are limiting you right now. And it was as Jesus was breaking the bread, as he ate with these disciples, that they suddenly recognized that it was him. Maybe it was because there at the table, they finally got a good look at him. What I think, though, on the other hand, maybe it was because as he broke the bread, as he did that, and they sat there across from him, they were finally able to see that his hands were marked with the marks, the scars of nails that had been driven through his hands as he was crucified. The gospel of John tells us that even in his resurrected body, Jesus still bore the scars from the nails that were placed in his hands. But you know what? There's one other part of this that we need to see. There may have also been a spiritual aspect to why they could not recognize him. It says in verse 16 that these two disciples were kept from recognizing him. And then in verse 31, it says that their eyes were opened and they recognized him. So it seems that beyond just the normal, natural level of seeing and recognizing, there is also a spiritual aspect to why they couldn't see Jesus for who he was when they couldn't. The Bible says this about you and me. It says that in order for us to truly see Jesus for who he is, we need to have our eyes opened spiritually. You know, there are a lot of people when Jesus was alive who saw him. They saw Jesus, and yet they didn't see him for who he really was. In the same way, you know, in his letter to the Ephesians, Paul the apostle, he prays for them. And his prayer is that the eyes of their hearts would be opened that they might see the incredible hope that they have in the gospel, the incredible riches, the eyes of their hearts. Now listen, I went to public school. I'm not a doctor, but I do know this. If I were to pull out your heart and set it here on the table and we were to examine it, you know what we'd find? There'd be some ventricles. There'd be some valves. But you know what there wouldn't be? There wouldn't be a set of eyeballs attached to it, right? There wouldn't be a set of eyeballs. So when Paul's talking about the eyes of your heart, he's talking about, not not physical eyes, he's talking about the ability to discern spiritual truths, spiritual things. So to truly see Jesus, it requires spiritual discernment. See, it's one thing to know about Jesus, but this is beyond just knowing the facts about who Jesus is and what he did. This means actually understanding in your heart of hearts what he did and what it meant and that it was for you. See, these two disciples, as they finally see Jesus for who he really is, this is a great picture of what needs to happen in all of our lives on a spiritual level. It's one thing to know about Jesus, but it's another thing when that information suddenly clicks in your heart and your eyes are opened and you go from knowing about Jesus to actually trusting in Jesus as your Savior and your Lord.